Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. How do you fancy living in space forever? That's the big question in this edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and we'll also be hearing from this man. I'm Alan Bean. I used to be Captain Alan Bean. Uh, I flew on Apollo 12, Skylab 3, fourth man to walk on the moon, and uh, that's about it. I'm an artist now, so I spend most of my time painting the experiences I had or fellow astronauts had on the moon. And I'll be reporting on the latest test of Europe's new Mars rover. And Richard proves that when it comes to the right stuff on a centrifuge, he is sadly lacking. You may laugh. <laughs> we welcome back Space Boffin's regular blogger and aspiring astronaut, Space Kate, Kate Arkless Gray. How is the plan going to get into space? It took a bit of a setback when I didn't get through on the Lynx Challenge, which I feel was quite sexist anyway. Um, I then tried my luck buying a lottery ticket so I could enter an evening standard competition. Oh, yes, I saw that, yeah. Um, I won the lottery. Well, I got four numbers, not enough to take me to space, but oh, still, gosh. a step I, I, what, I, I so <laughs> admire your persistence, because you keep going and you keep going, and it's going to happen eventually, isn't it? It has to happen eventually. I'm too stubborn for it not to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're also joined by Jerry Stone, who glories in the title of President of the Mars Society UK. Uh, not quite Supreme Leader of the Universe yet, Jerry. Not yet. But, uh, you're working, yeah, you're on, working it. on it. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Mars Society then. I mean, according to the website, it's to further the exploration and settlement of the Red Planet. I mean, ultimately, you see the images on the, on the website. It, it's all about colonisation of Mars. I mean, how feasible is that? Oh, that's it's not really a problem. Uh, we have the technology to do it, and the cost isn't as great as many people need. What we need is the people to actually say right let's get on and do it and uh, the Mars Society is different from a lot of other space groups uh, in many ways because as we don't we don't just talk about it we actually do it we have two stations one in Utah and one in the Canadian Arctic they're called the Mars analog research stations you can guess how we worked out the name for those <laughs> and basically these are simulated habitats that uh, might be of the design that could be sent to Mars and teams usually of six people will spend normally two weeks sometimes four weeks on there and they simulate being on Mars they carry out research there that's fine that that's fine but Utah even if it is inhospitable in the desert Mm. still has air still has an atmosphere still has access to water and it's close The crew work as though they were on Mars. They have actually limited water in the habitat 
they have power. I mean, there is no grid power there. Uh, when they go outside, they put on environment suits. They go through an airlock. I mean, there's obviously no actual air pressure difference, but uh, they wait there. All of their contact with the mission support team is delayed by 20 minutes. Are these Mars so. Society members, or are there any scientists involved in this? Because I think lots of people will think, well, is this just a bunch of people saying, come on, let's have a fun time out yeah. in the desert pretending to be on Mars, or is it a lot more serious than that? Well, first of all, it isn't much of a fun time. There's a heck of a lot of work involved, and they are mostly scientists. The HABs are used by NASA and other research organisations. And in the new year, we have uh, a UK team led by Ashley Dale, and they are PhDs and uh, high-level scientists taking uh, on this particular mission. Oh, good. We well, ought to get some of them on, uh, on the podcast, I yeah. reckon. Well, let's talk about the, the other aspect of this that you're interested in before I come back to, to Mars and the technology and the like you also are head of a project called the Study Project Advancing Colony Engineering essentially setting up colonies in space again how feasible is that how much is that science well we know it can be done because the original des- designs were carried out in the 1970s uh, let's introduce the main persona here, Gerard O'Neill. He was a professor at Princeton University. And back in the summer of 1969, shortly after Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon, he posed what was meant to be the first of a series of questions to a study group of, of new students there. They never got on to the second question. What he asked them was, is a planetary surface the right place for an expanding technological civilization? And their studies produced the answer, no. It seems a better place is what is essentially something like a large space station, high in orbit, not on a surface. Tell me about what what these would would be like, because they're nothing like the International Space Station. A whole different scale. Yeah, nothing at all. Certainly on terms of scale. And also, the astronauts on the International Space Station are weightless. There's no artificial gravity there. These habitats would be rotated. Um, People would live on the inside of them and we'd get artificial gravity. So there were three main designs. The first one, uh, a sphere, which would house 10,000 people. Wow. Then a Stanford torus, which is uh, a wheel-shaped structure like the space station in 2001 but on a much larger scale and somewhat similar to what we've seen recently in Elysium although we trust in reality the politics will be a lot better. The big ones are what are known as the O'Neill cylinders and these are twin cylinders four miles in diameter 20 miles long they could hold 10 million people. Where would you position them? Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, Instead of just being in high orbit around the Earth, the location would be at a place referred to as L5. This is one of the five gravitational points calculated by... uh, That's Lagrange, isn't it? That's right. He did that back in uh, 1772. He calculated places where the gravity of the Earth and the Moon effectively cancel out. But L4 and L5, which are... 60 degrees behind the moon, 60 degrees in front of it. These are stable. If you start to move away from that place, the 
combination of the gravity of the Earth and the Moon will pull you back again, so you stay in the same place. And uh, with these colonies, the main point about their design was that the team deliberately restricted the um, the calculations to materials and processes that were available at the time so that nobody could say, well, it's a nice idea, but you can't do it because we haven't invented transparent aluminum yet. Or something. So it was only with the current technology. So you're saying then that effectively this could be done now because the designs were, have already been done, but actually with better materials, more advanced technology, it, there's a, a, a genuine more likelihood if we had the will and the... Uh, and the money. <laughs> and that's the point behind this study. It's now 40 years since those original studies were carried out. We have improved technology, we have new technologies, we have new materials and advanced um, materials and so forth. And it strikes me that if we were to do this now, we could do it more efficiently than we could have done in the past. Kate? It's no secret that I want to get to space, and this all sounds fantastic, but I just want to go back a step and... The, the research you were talking about saying that the uh, planetary surface wasn't the best place to have a technological society. I, wh- why not? Why? Yeah. why? I mean, surely you're actually just creating more problems, you know, with there being no gravity or no water or all these other things. I just don't understand. Well, there's two big advantages of working uh, out in space. One is uh, that you have solar energy. So you can concentrate the sun's heat, provide 5,000 degrees, so you can pretty much melt whatever materials you you want to work with. You can also do manufacturing in weightlessness or by rotating the facility. You can have gravity at whatever level you want. And uh, you can also, of course, turn the the sunlight into electricity. So you've basically got all the power for manufacturing and for supplying the colony that uh, you you could need. I suppose, yes, because you're... I didn't think about that because if you're orbiting the moon effectively or close to the moon you're, you're sort of you're not all, orbiting the moon you're, no, you're 60, orbiting the earth at the distance of the at moon. the distance of the moon yeah. you're so much closer to the sun compared to say mars you're reducing your fuel because you're not that will only take that'll be about 250,000 miles away as opposed to millions of mm-hmm. of miles away and the journey would take days as opposed to a minimum of 6 to 9 months yes you said we have the technology to go to Mars. Do we have the technology to do this? And why would you want to do this rather than go to Mars? Aren't you trying to do both? <laughs> yeah, of course, I like Put to do... Put yourself out of a job. <laughs> to, to, to do both. It was technologically feasible to do this 40 years ago. But what it needed was the space launch infrastructure to get the initial... Uh, materials up into space. 90% of the materials to build the colonies would come from the moon. Um, Because of the Apollo project, we know that there is silicon for the windows, uh, aluminium, iron, magnesium for the main structure. There's oxygen in the lunar soil for the people to breathe. So most of the material would come from the, the moon. But at the time, the space shuttle flew far less frequently and far more expensively than it was designed to do. But isn't that the fundamental issue here with whether you're talking about building technology on Mars or building technology out in space, some sort of colony, that actually the practicalities get in the way? And that's the other reason why I'm running this study now. 
because we are approaching a revolution in access to space. Mm. And that is through the Skylon launcher, which is being designed by reaction engines here in the UK. This is going to be the long-awaited single-stage-to-orbit, fully reusable launcher. This thing is going to be a world-beater, and when it goes into service, the cost of reaching orbit is going to plummet. And this will provide the infrastructure that will allow the whole project to be kick-started. Can I just have a quick poll around the the studio here? Who would rather go to Mars, and who would rather be in a, on a colony in, in space? Kate? Do we get to come back from Mars? No, you, generally that's the thing. That's the issue. You don't generally get to come back from Mars. Would you get to come back from one of these colonies, or would that be oh, your yeah. life? Yeah, but why, okay. why not? So you can come back from a colony, but you can't come back from Mars. If you live very long term on Mars under one-third Earth gravity, you'll find it extremely difficult adapting to Earth gravity. Okay, so yeah. one-way trip to Mars, or possibility of coming back from a colony in deep space? That is a really hard question. Okay, you think about it, Sue. Oh, I would love the idea of going to a colony in space. I think that, for me, it's what partly got me into science in the first place is the science fiction aspect of it and reading about these sort of colonies and seeing them in films and movies. So, for me, that would be like a dream come true. Kate's got... There's, got there's, there's one thing we haven't mentioned, though, is is the sort of governance and the society structure in these colonies, and I think that... Well, so if it was a Thatcher government-style government, you wouldn't want to go or something? <laughs> no, we, we, we would have the, you know, the chance, the opportunity to develop a whole new governance system, which is very exciting, so I think I'd have to wait and see what that colony I was going to be I think you're exactly right, because you said, Jerry, that, oh, let's put the politics to one side for a moment. You've got 10,000 people living together. You absolutely, as Kate says, cannot put the politics aside. You've got to have some sort of government. Oh, no. You've got to yes. work out how you run this sort of place. Absolutely. Um, it, we assume that there's going to be uh, an overall political structure to it. Uh, probably the colony layout will be a number of small towns they'll have their own local councils and so forth um what would be the overriding law system that's something to be sorted out in fact what i have done with the project team is not said well we're going to look at at this and this and this we have first of all been putting together a list of questions that the project needs to answer and simply as a one-line entry, that list of questions goes on for three pages. And the political, legal and economic uh, part of that is a huge section. Who's going to own the products that are manufactured up there? Um, if somebody uh, wants some kind of asylum, then uh, what's the, the political status of that and so forth? I suspect Sue will only go if she gets to wear a Star Trek uniform. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, what, what it actually made me think of was Battlestar Galactica, which is effectively a floating community, a colony in, in space for a long time. And what made it one of the best science fiction series of all time was the politics and how it's one step so close to becoming a dictatorship with an enclosed community um, as opposed to democracy. Admittedly, they were being chased by Cylons, but it, yeah, that's yeah. what made it Actually, you probably wonderful. say um, Babylon 5 was closer because their vehicle... Oh, that vehicle, was the most tedious TV series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the, their vehicle was uh, essentially uh, the banal sphere. It had the, the central rotating sphere and so forth. So for vehicle design, that was similar. 
Well, um, let's uh, sort of move to, to Mars again now, because a few weeks ago, UK scientists actually gathered together for a Mars rover mission. Well, don't worry if, if you think, oh my goodness, I missed that one, because this was the Mars Sample Field Acquisition Experiment with a rover, or SAFER. And it allowed scientists in a control centre in Harwell in Oxfordshire to operate a prototype rover several thousand miles away in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And and the site that was specifically chosen because it resembled Mars. Well, those at Harwell, they had to deal with a time delay and no other clues as to where the rover had landed or what it could see apart from the information it sent back to them. So it simulated a, a real mission. Well, I went along to watch the field trial in action, sadly to Harwell and not Chile, and spoke first to the field trial coordinator, Lester War. He's an engineering manager at Astrium, which built the rover, and while the trial was a success it wasn't all plain sailing. The team out in Atacama who were supporting the rover and putting it into the field had their gazebos blown away by a dust devil and that caused absolute mayhem with laptops flying all over the desert and tables being run down the desert in in a pretty unceremonious fashion but they've managed to recover they've got hold of another gazebo because the other one was too badly damaged they're back on track. What's the relationship between what you're doing now and in the sort of preparations that are going for ExoMars? The first one is how to organise field trials so that you get meaningful information, data, experience from them. The other things that are important are, given that the way we operate rovers is effectively like being a blinkered horse in that you can't see everything around you, your only view of the desert or the environment in which the rover is operating is through the cameras, it means that you have a, a very constrained view So operating with a limited, if you like, data set, you're not present, but operating through that sort of narrow channel, visual channel, is a really good discipline, and learning how to do that uh, is very, very important for future missions. Andrew Coates from the Mallard Space Science Laboratory, you're a PI of PanCan, the camera on the rover. What's happening at the moment? We're in front of a screen. Yeah, what we're doing is planning the next trajectory of the rover, so it's getting the right commands in to take pictures at the right points. So this particular point, which you're just looking at right now, is somewhere where we might be using the PanCan data not just for science, but also for navigation as well, because uh, it allows you to sort of look at the two rocks, which are an area which we've just called gate, which might be the gate we actually go through in the end. So it's, it's using it to, to sort of plan the trajectory. Most, the most um, use of PanCam so far has been for science, you know, for taking the spectra of the rocks to look at composition and so on. That's, so that's really what we're aching to do on Mars, you know, and, uh, and we're doing it at the moment in the At- Atacama Desert, which is, uh, which is quite fun. As the rover's eyes, do you feel the pressure? Because it is reliant on you to huge extent absolutely it's, there's there's real pressure but this is what we enjoy you know because we're actually you can see we're actually getting the context for the entire rover mission and this this is just from the start been been something which has been hugely exciting to me if it wasn't for the color version where you see the red soil and you think yes that looks like mars and it's only when you notice the blue sky that you have to remind yourself oh yes we're still on earth it's it's that realistic, isn't it? It, it is a very realistic uh, scenario, yes, and um, there are some aspects of the geology which are very similar. So, yes, it's a good, it's a good test. I am Dr. Susanne Schwenzer from the Open University. 
You're a geologist or working in Earth sciences. How like Mars is the Atacama Desert? It is very much like Mars in many respects because you have a very barren landscape. You have these huge boulders that are made from basalt and uh, you have a pavement which is finer grained and we might even find rocks that are much finer grained than that. You have very, very little water and so you have this rough, very dry landscape that resembles many places on Mars. So this place was chosen specifically for its geological likeness to Mars but it's also pretty remote isn't it but fortunately you do have a big observatory nearby for the necessary equipment needed in order to do this trial as well. Yes Yes, that is true but for me as the geologist on the ground here in the remote control center I actually try to completely ignore all of this. To me this is a rover on Mars if I drive it into a ditch it will be in a ditch (laughs) and I try to not do this and I try to not listen to any one of these people who have been there and now come back here because course, I try to immerse myself into this setting. I have a rover on Mars and I am not in the Atacama Desert and actually it looks very, very close and I can get this feeling that I am on Mars with a rover and I have to make the best choices to explore a landscape that no human eye has ever seen before. Joined by Dave Barnes from the University of Aberystwyth. How important is this as a sort of stepping stone to the actual mission itself? It's absolutely vital. I mean, there's no point, you know, spending 1.2 billion euros on a mission, get it there successfully, if we all sort of then turn around and say, well, uh, what do we do next? This is the first sort of, you know, small stepping stone in bringing people together, learning how to do it. What are the problems? What are the issues? It's, it's, you know, never mind, you know, the dynamics of the sort of Martian environment and, and, and the engineering and the science instruments, but you've got human dynamics and, and, and the teams need to come together and get to know one another. And science is all about teamwork. Absolutely. Yeah, no one instrument has all the answers. We've had sort of meetings about, you know, science collaboration. It's one thing talking about it. This field trial here, the safer field trial, is, is great because we're actually doing it. David Barnes and some of the other UK-based scientists cutting their teeth on the Mars Safer Field Trial in preparation for Europe's ExoMars mission in 2016. That was fascinating. That was that was great. But can I just pick them up on these awful acronyms? This I'm is a sick. Of I'm yours. sick <laughs> of space acronyms where they start with a word and work backwards. So that one was Safer Mars Sample Field Acquisition Experiment with a Rover. I really. I mean, the worst is Juice, which is the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Have you got one, Kate? Okay, you've got a name for these. These are actually called backronyms, where you start with the word (laughs) and then you work backwards to get an acronym. I'm fed up with them. I'm fed up with them in space. And that's just a particularly terrible one. By the way, if you want to hear more about NASA's latest mission to Mars, which is MAVEN... And that stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission. Although why you'd actually want to start with the word maven in the first place is completely beyond me. I think it sounds rude. Actually, I can answer that. Oh, yeah. Maven is a Hebrew word meaning expert. Right, Okay. So they are experts going to Mars. (sighs) And so so. am I. (laughs) You've got some poetry on that mission, haven't you? That's right. Um, Please don't read it. (laughs) Um, Like like many uh, other spacecraft, my name is going to be on the spacecraft. But in this case, the outreach team asked for people to submit poems in the form of a Japanese haiku. So three lines, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. 
and there were over 12,500 submissions. And have you been picked? And they chose just over 1,000 to go on the DVD, which is why my Mars Society business card also says Interplanetary Poet. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. So, three lines? Yeah, go on, three lines. Okay, yeah. We look out to space, and Mars beckons us onward. Our future lies there. Actually, that's quite good, cool, oh, isn't that's it? Not yeah, bad. it's not not like a cope with poetry if it's all three lines. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Very good. Congratulations. I think our, our, <laughs> yes. In fact, our names are also on that um, DVD, aren't they, Rich? Yes, I think so. It's yeah. such a silly little thing, but mm. I can't resist it, those things, is, is going on the website. Have you... my, my signature's already there with um, Curiosity. Oh, fab. Yeah. Well, I think we're already on Mars. I think Mars burned up in the Mars atmosphere on the Beagle, didn't they, as well? I'm pretty sure. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And still to come, my centrifuge terror. That wasn't Richard's centrifuge terror. That was Apollo 12 astronaut Alan Bean with Pete Conrad enthusing about a rock on the moon. Alan Bean was actually closer to home recently for an event in Pontefract in West Yorkshire organised by the rather wonderful Space Lectures team. We couldn't make it, but luckily Kate did. How was it, Kate? There's always something magical about being in a room with somebody who's walked on the moon. Like, they, they walked on the moon. I, I can't get over the excitement. I, I know it makes me sound like a giddy school child, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that because that is so exciting. Well, we're going to hear a bit about his art in a moment. So tell us a little bit about how he managed to convey his mission excitement because, you know, you, you're hearing from a guy who's probably told people the same story every week for the last 40 years. The one thing that really struck me was when he mentioned just before they landed on the moon and he felt frightened. And that's something you don't often hear an astronaut admit to. And he said that he actually had to sort of look out of the window and then he knew that he couldn't do his job while feeling frightened, so he had to get his mind back together. So he looked in at the instrument panel and it looked like all of the simulations they'd done, so he kind of felt a bit calmer, you know, looked out the window again, back to the instrument panel, and that's how he coped with it. I think what people forget often is that they were called the, the lunar module pilots, the the, the people, the, the number two person on the moon. They were actually the rookie astronauts, really, weren't they? For many of them, this was their, their first flight into space. It's certainly the first time they'd gone anywhere near the moon. And yet he was allowed to fly because Pete Conrad gave him the opportunity to fly. And he, Alan Beam was saying, well, won't, won't Mission Control be a bit unhappy about this? Ah, but we're, we're on the other side of the moon. They won't know. <laughs> oh, great. And he spoke very highly of Pete Conrad. It was, it was very interesting. And he said, actually, the, the most important thing that he'd learned in his 18 years at NASA was actually from some advice that Conrad had given him about being a team player and how you must learn to respect everybody in the team. That's really interesting because I interviewed again as part of the Space Lectures series Al Warden who was absolutely of the opposite opinion and there were two very different crews and uh, the Apollo 12 crew and it's always portrayed fictionally portrayed that was uh, Dick Gordon, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean as this team. I think they even drove the same cars didn't they Joey? You know about yeah, this. Yeah they, they had uh, a set of, of matched uh, Corvettes Oh, I love it. I sort of like them even more now. Mm. It does sound like sort of boys and their toys, doesn't yeah, it? He, he was quite excited about the cars. They could get a new one every year because, they, you know, having an astronaut drive your car was 
was a of cool course. thing for them. So they had these free cars, and uh, his wife had decided that she wanted a little convertible or something. And so, yeah, the next year, that's what they got. Well, we have uh, Richard's actually interviewed Alan Bean quite a few years ago, which is why on our bookshelves we have a lovely hardback copy of his uh, print of his artwork signed by him, which is just fantastic. And we heard at the beginning of the podcast that little clip of him where he introduces himself. It sounded quite self-effacing, really, and how he considered himself, I'm an artist now, you know. Did he show any of his work? Yeah, he actually talked her through quite a few of his his different pictures and and why he'd done them and and what the inspiration was. I actually thought what was beautiful was the the titles of the pieces had a link to the story. So there was Lone Star, which is a, a picture of him throwing his silver astronaut pin onto the moon. And he said it's the only star he actually saw up there because when you're on the moon, you you can't really see the stars because of you know the way that it is but he'd taken his silver pin and he threw it across the moon and uh, had his gold astronaut pin that he'd now sort of properly earned in his other pocket so he made sure he checked very quickly before uh, <laughs> check carefully before he threw well, well you were part of a, a group that got to ask him some questions afterwards and this is a response to your question about how his paintings of a predominantly grey monochrome lunar landscape ended up in his vision and view so colorful when i first left nasa when my heart was more of a scientist astronaut my first paintings were fairly color related they were gray maybe after a year or two i could make them slightly green or slightly yellow and as time passed and i became more of an artist in my heart then i could do whatever I felt would be more interesting to look at, both for me and uh, maybe uh, anyone that looked at the paintings. So now uh, that's how I think about it. And so when I'm planning a painting, I usually am telling a story that I want to be remembered long after we're gone. And then uh, I build little models so that I can uh, uh, get the lighting and everything right and then when I uh, start to paint them I think about what colors I think might be good in this painting for some reason and then uh, I try to paint it that way and then uh, I have to make sure that I think it looks right and if it does then I just hope other people like it too so that's what artists do we've never seen a uh, a pond of water lilies that looked as good as Monet's water lilies. It just isn't, they just don't. Artists do something different. We've never seen, uh, for example, to stick with Monet, I went to look at the Rouen Cathedral. It's a gray granite building. It's gray, (laughs) and the sun rises all through the day till the sun sets. But he painted it all the colors that he could think of that he liked. And we like those paintings much better, believe me, than standing in front of the Rouen Cathedral and looking at it when it looks like a gray church. So I've been there to look at it, and uh, that was one of the things I realized, that uh, artists have a different job than maybe most people think they do. I was just wondering about things, things that you had taken, personal effects that you might have taken to the moon and anything you might have left there, if you had any nice stories around that. When they started assigning people to Apollo and Skylab, they assigned me to Skylab. 
I wanted to be on Apollo, but I was sent to Skylab. And then Pete Conrad had a crew that was Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon, and a fellow by the a Marine by the name of C.C. Williams. And so they went along in training for a while, and I went along over on Skylab for a while. And then C.C. Williams got killed in an airplane crash. And so uh, then Pete requested that they, you know, Deke come over and get me from Skylab and put him on his crew, which I thought was a great idea, even though I, I had never thought it would happen. I did, it wasn't something I thought would happen. But anyway, it did. And so when we made up our patch, our Apollo 12 patch, we put four stars up in the sky. And then when we went to the moon, then we took one of those patches, and then I had asked C.C. Williams' wife, widow, for his wings that he earned as a Marine pilot, and we took those to the moon. And then right at the end of our EVA, we, Pete and I went over near uh, Surveyor Crater, and we put his wings down in, in, in an Apollo 12 patch near there. And, and uh, in the painting that I'm just finishing up, I'm leaning over and put, you know, kind of tossing them down. And then Pete's standing over to my left where you are, and he's saluting. And then I stepped back, not in the painting, but then I stepped back and saluted. And we left those there. And so my guess is that the wings are there perfect as the day that I left them and will be for millions of years. They'll be beautiful gold uh, pilot wings. And uh, the patch, I've wondered, I think with that ultraviolet uh, rays coming in from the sun a lot, maybe it's faded. I don't really know. A poignant tribute there from Alan Bean for C.C. Williams, the man who should have gone to the moon instead of him. He's I didn't know lovely. that. No, I did not and know that. And about the I four never heard stars on the patch. Mm. And Kate, you were um, sort of mentioning uh, while while we were listening to that piece then about some of the equipment that he uses. Yeah, well, he's very keen to share his, his moon experience and he actually uses a hammer that he used on the moon to create textures on some of his artworks. And he wanted to add moon dust to the pictures, but obviously most of that's locked up for scientific purposes. And then he realised that the patches that he wore on the moon were a bit dirty. He thought, oh, I'd better wash those. Whoa, hang on a minute. <laughs> the reason they're dirty is because they've got moon dust on them. And he's actually, over the years, been cutting little slices off the patches he wore on the moon and sprinkling bits of those into his paintings. I wish we could afford one. Mm. I've been lucky enough to be in his studio, actually, in wow. uh, in Houston, and I, I really feel that he, he manages to capture in paint what the, the, the black and white, quite technical photos of the moon failed to do. And there's there an irony here as well, of course, because that mission was meant to be the first mission that had uh, colour live transmissions from the moon but as, as you'll know Jerry they, uh, he, he zapped the camera didn't they? <laughs> yes um, and the, the weird thing is that uh, the camera pointed to the, to the sun and the standard story on this is that it burnt out the, the Vidicon tube uh, but it didn't actually and uh, it's been shown that if they'd only had a screwdriver up there that they could have probably fixed it <laughs> <laughs> and that would have stopped an awful lot of conspiracy theorists as well. Well, yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, this is another of the uh, the presentations that I do. It's called Would You Believe We Put a Man on the Moon? <laughs> and I go through 
all of these hoax claims in great detail and I rip them to shreds. <laughs> good, uh, good. I show that these people just do not know what they're talking about. It, it's quite sad though really and, and Kate, you know, I, it's completely understandable how you felt because there aren't that many of these moonwalkers left. Mm. Uh, um, it, yeah, it, it's it's just incredible to think that all that happened. Well, to me actually, it feels like it all happened ages ago because it happened before I was born so to me it's like oh I grew up in a world where we put people on the moon okay that's fine and then you you meet them and you realise well hang on they're still alive so it can't have been that long ago I've met quite a few of them been lucky enough to meet quite a few of them particularly around about 15 years ago I met almost all of them actually and for a series I was making for for the BBC and they were sprightly newly retired you know, pretty youngish retirees. Now you see them, they are old men. Mm. And in 10 years' time, there are not going to be many left, if any. Now, there's one more thing that we have to listen to before we go. You may remember that last month's podcast was from the Kinetic Centrifuge Facility in Farnborough. And while I really took to being whizzed around at 3.4G like a spinning duck to water, well, Richard didn't fare quite so well. We promised you you could hear exactly how he got on. Now, you'll have to listen carefully, but it's not pretty. Uh, 3.6 I think I went to 3.4 yeah I don't think Richard's going to cut it do you not an astronaut she says proudly (laughs) everyone's looking at me in the studio like I'm some sort of pathetic coward it was scary and Richard got quite upset because afterwards I said I just laughed and said you do realise you scream like a girl and then he told me off he said you're supposed to be a feminist you can't use that expression but that's how we sound I wrote about this for um, my BBC Future column and uh, and what I said was and I'll say it again now if someone offered me a trip into space I would of course take it but I won't enjoy it (laughs) 
you better let me go instead then yeah exactly I just don't I think you should it. be allowed if that's your attitude <laughs> yep. I'm so sorry well, the Space Boffins podcast is produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium ABSL Space Products and with a grant from the UK Space Agency thank you very much to our guests Kate Arkless Gray and Jerry Stone who uh, does do Mars workshops in schools if you want your kids given a good talking to about uh, various aspects of space and if you want to learn more about the Mars Society it's www.marssociety.co.uk and that's the Space Boffins podcast you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and do join us again next month I'm Richard Hollingham and I'm Sue so much better on the centrifuge Nelson thanks for listening selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.